0: thing I would suggest is that um, the clock is ticking, the window is closing, and that humanity needs to get its act together and truly begin addressing this issue.
1: Welcome to To Tell the Tale, a podcast about witnessing the history of humanity's past, present, and future. I'm your host, Heidi Toth, and we're talking today about religious nationalism and its role in the climate crisis. I'm here today with Alex Alvarez and Bjorn Kronendorfer. Dr. Alvarez is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at NAU and the author of several books, including Native America and the Question of Genocide, Genocidal Crimes, and his latest, Unstable Ground, Climate Change, Conflict, and Genocide. Alex, thanks for being here today.
0: I'm happy to be here.
1: Dr. Kronendorfer is an endowed professor of religious studies at NAU and director of the Martin Springer Institute. His books include Men and Masculinities in Christianity and Judaism, A Critical Reader, The Holocaust and Masculinities, Critical Inquiries into the Presence and Absence of Men, and his latest Unsettling Empathy, Working with Groups in Conflict. Bjorn, thank you for being here today. Thank you. So we know that climate change is directly or indirectly correlated to the deaths of millions of people around the globe in all countries in the world. It contributes to more severe natural disasters, including hurricanes, fires, floods, and droughts, and to more extreme weather conditions that have led to starvation, the increased risk of severe diseases, and even war. Before Syria's devastating war, for example, which has killed more than half a million people and displaced more than 13 million, a massive five-year drought ravaged the country, which contributed to the unrest that then led to war. The World Health Organization estimates that between 2030 and 2050, climate change will cause 250,000 additional deaths per year. Humanity's action or inaction around emissions, fossil fuels, contaminated water, and the loss of usable land have had a direct result on the Earth's rising temperature and the subsequent catastrophic events. And the rise of ethnic and religious nationalism and individual nations and political parties refusing to work toward global solutions or accept that the climate is changing has put the most vulnerable people, ecosystems, and natural capital at risk. As the climate warms and resources, including fertile land, clean air, clean water, and the sacred spaces that many religions hold dear, become more threatened, nationalism is leading to countries holding on to what they can at the expense of others. With climate change, which is the definition of a global problem, that leads not only to more conflict and inevitably more deaths, but also zero solutions religion and religious nationalism play a unique role in this. So let's just jump right in with an easy one. What is religious nationalism? Bjorn?
2: Religious nationalism is, um, at least more recently, a term that recurs uh, more frequently. Um, after I would say in the last uh, five to ten years, when people begin thinking about that certain fairly restrictive forms of of religious expression or religious movements have tied themselves to the fate of national states. Um, It used to be um, that religions always were more like seen as a counterpart to to sovereign states or even to sovereign nations, kind of have a different voice that is not just ruled by by, uh, you know, pragmatic political agenda, but something um, that that supersedes the pragmatic values that a state has to do in order to keep functioning, um, basically to bring in an ethical, dimensional, moral voice. Um, recently, and I think it has to do with the uh, larger global fears of which um, climate change is, I think. One of the underlying causes, but I don't think it's um, necessarily acknowledged by the people who turn more nationalists, That they're looking for a certain kind of stability that they don't, that they feel are being lost. If you think globally, and if you are really looking at the threats that we all experience they try to find easy solutions to the complexity of threats we, that we are experiencing. And so we have now a form of religious nationalism where there's a belief that the nation has to be part of a particular religion, that a particular form of religion has to be tied to the fate of a nation-state. More recently, really, the term comes into play that is Christian nationalism for the United States. Um, that these kind of religious expressions used to be um, called uh, religious fundamentalism. And it's more recent that they have taken on a really explicit political tone and a political party line. Uh, You know, I
0: couldn't agree more than with what Bjorn said. I would simply add to it, we live in a world of nation-states. And nationalism is part of that, right? Where states have worked hard to make people feel they belong within that national community. And nationalism is all about getting a sense of allegiance and a sense of collective identity, um, even amongst sometimes diverse populations. But what we also understand is that nationalism does not just unite, it can also divide. Right, it is the idea that um, we highlight or we um, identify those who belong in part against those who don't belong, and. There are some forms of nationalism that tend to be more inclusive than others. Um, And what we do know about religious nationalism is that it sometimes has tended to be much more exclusionary, right? It very narrowly defines who belongs to the national community and who does not. And what we know is that exclusionary forms of nationalism often... um, amplify the risk of various kinds of persecution or
2: violence between different groups. And, and maybe I add that you know, one of the ways how we the term religion, from its Latin root, might, means actually to bind, to bind something together, and you can think of it as either as a communal binding or combining to something greater than a nation-state. Um, and nationalism, as you just said, Alex, is really is a unifying force. You know, and the question is, at what point does this unity that's supposed to be created become an exclusivist unity? And the kind of religion-nationalism, I think ties its fate, binding its fate to a nation state, I think it's a completely wrong direction to take, personally, for yeah. my own values. But we see this, that, that, that the unifying force, exclusivist unifying force of nationalism finds a religious equivalent where they tie their religious outlook to the fate of a nation state. It's not helpful. That's my right. view.
0: And so it's great for those who are members of that religion or those yeah. who are a member of that community. But if you are defined as not belonging, you're an outsider, right? And what we see is, you know, nationalism is a positive and a negative, I think, as Bjorn just highlighted.
1: So we are seeing the effects of climate change all around us. We have seen in the last couple of years terrible fires in Australia and in the Amazon Fire season in California is year-round, and every fire is worse than the last one. We see flooding and droughts throughout the world, which leads to food shortages, leading to starvation as our land becomes less fertile, and crops are at greater risk from those same natural disasters. But there are more serious adverse effects that we may see coming up, as dire as these already are. And these are part of your book, Alex, Unstable Ground, which connects climate change and its strain on the world resources to violence, war, and genocide. Can you tell us about the thesis of Unstable Ground?
0: Sure. So, unstable ground was, in many ways, the um, outcome of my own growing awareness of these things that are happening around us. As someone who lives here in the American Southwest, who enjoys um, getting outside, you know, I increasingly came to be aware and, and concerned about the changes occurring all around me in terms of climate, and. Professionally, as someone who studies violence, the origins of violence, the nature of violence, especially collective violence, um, it was, I think, inevitable that I began putting those together because I began realizing that most of the attention I had seen around climate change was about its effects on the natural world, on polar bears in the Arctic, on sea level rise, these kind of things. And I began realizing, however, that humanity, as much as we like to think we are, we are not separate from nature. We live within the natural world and that these changes are increasingly affecting human communities. And so in Unstable Ground, I began looking at the ways in which climate change has historically impacted societies going back to the earliest civilizations how climate change has actually been connected with ongoing contemporary tensions and conflict and violence. Uh, you use the example of Syria um, uh, just um, a few years ago with the drought and how that basically devastated agriculture and... Um, Farms throughout northern Syria in particular led to a lot of people losing their livelihoods, people who became very unhappy with the government, and contributed to a lot of political and social unrest. Um, We can also look at the Darfur and the genocide that began there in 2003 that was in many ways linked with increased desertification and the need for access to arable land and water. And so I began looking at those kind of examples and then applying it to potential ongoing situations um, that we are increasingly seeing um, uh, in the world around us. And so whether direct or indirect, my argument is that climate change will increasingly pose challenges and stresses to nations around the world and the ability of different communities, regions, and nations to successfully cope, adapt, ameliorate, um, will vary hugely. And that poses real risks for the development of various kinds of communal, ethnic, religious, political kinds of conflict over increasingly scarce resources, either protecting what you have or acquiring ones you need. One of the single biggest consequences Um, that we will see is population displacement with millions and millions of people around the world on the move because of both the direct consequences of climate change think of sea level rise and flooding and people being forced out but also indirect right? states weakening because they're unable to meet the challenges the rise of various kinds of conflict and then people fleeing violence and conflict or a lack of opportunity um, in search of what they need. These displaced populations are incredibly vulnerable groups um, to things like scapegoating, persecution, especially if there are religious or ethnic or other kinds of differences that separate them from the populations of the host nations. Think about Bangladesh, for example, in India, where there's a history of religious conflict going back many, many decades. And the consequences of climate change for that portion of the world um, absolutely point to massive dislocation with so many people from countries like Bangladesh trying to flee across international borders um, for security and opportunity. And so the question is, how will they be met? How will they be um, perceived in countries that will also be struggling to cope and deal with all of these challenges? Will they be welcomed or will they be seen as a drain, as a threat, as outsiders coming to take what we have?
1: We know that all of the world is experiencing effects from climate change, but it's not uh, every country is not experiencing them equally, and they're not experiencing them proportionally. Particularly, the West has not experienced as severe effects from climate change. In an article in Science in 2014, Partha Dasgupta and Vir Abhadran Ramanathan lay out some pretty stark numbers. One billion people of the world's 7.3 billion are responsible for 50% of the greenhouse gases released. The next 3 billion are responsible for 45%. And the bottom 3 billion are responsible for only 5%. However, that same group at the bottom bear the majority of the adverse effects of climate change because they rely more directly on natural capital, which is under assault from a warming climate, and they're also less able to pay for protection from extreme weather events, which means we see in these countries more climate change-related deaths, worse health outcomes, and worse economic outcomes. And they also don't get the benefits of the industry that Western countries have that are often contribute to climate change. And the ugly reality here is that these wealthier countries are outsourcing the adverse effects of industry. And it's not just that these countries are wealthier and Western. They are also majority Christian. How much of a factor, if any, do religion and religious nationalism play in that calculus? Um, Bjorn, let's start with you.
2: So, I, I don't think that religion plays a direct role into this. I actually do think it, it's mainly economic interests that are politically, that, that will somehow politically and militarily uh, impose on other people. Um, so, I, I don't think there's a direct relationship in terms of religion being the major factor, as opposed to times in Western colonialism where religion was a very strong, legitimating force to conquer people and subjugate people and take the resources. I don't think that's true that's to the same extent today. Um, I think religion plays much more of a role these days that it either um, allevi- alleviates some of the fears that come with this, or um Heiden, heighten the fears, um, depending of where we come from. So if we talk about the Western world, and we probably would have to say that world is mostly Christian. Well, actually, I think they're mostly secular. But within religious views, they would be mostly Christian. We can talk about Christianity here. And um, I think generally they fall into the categories of whether religion becomes an additional kind of ideology that doesn't care much about the events because what they expect is an, is an apocalyptic outcome anyway. So the climate disasters that we're seeing would just be something that is expected. (laughs) Somehow the world will come to an end through apocalyptic means, and the climate change is just one way to go this. And and how do we respond? Through personal salvation. That would be one Christian and often a Christian nationalist or fundamentalist response. Of course, the other part of Christianity that is much more activist and socially conscious. They would think that it's social engagement that, that we need, and they would think of terms like stewardship of nature, Rather, nature telling us that this world is coming to an end. It's like it's our task um, to keep keep the natural order, the divinely built natural order, um, in good shape. God said it's the creation is good, and our responsibility is to keep it good. Could I uh, ask you a question, yeah. Bjorn? Actually.
0: Because one of the things you're um, raising, and as someone who's not a scholar of religions and so forth, but it's my understanding that hasn't historically the ways in which Christianity has generally viewed the world is that it's been created for us to use, to exploit. And in some ways, the, the lifestyles we lead are are seen as being... Um, a manifestation of God's, you know, um, love for us, and and so the the natural world is has been created. The bounty is there for us to use, and to harvest the resources. It, it, would you say is that still in a a a view that
2: is pretty common? It, I think I, I would say there's three things. One is the one it's personal salvation that helps you. The other one is like okay, we are here on this earth, and we have to have to. We have to do something with the natural goods that God gave us, and according to the biblical story, is principally good. You know, there's nothing wrong with nature. And then we have the two branches. One is, it's a stewardship model. We, we, We are responsible to nature as we extract from it. We're also responsible for it. And the other one is, exactly what to use. It's there for us to use. Right. And... And, and that dovetails very much then with kind of the capitalist idea that is also very much based in Calvinist history, um, that we can exploit it to the, to the extent as we want to, and there's nothing wrong with that right. either. And know, frankly, this, this is where religions, religious views and people with different religious ethics really differ.
0: right. But but it does bring up this issue you raised in your question that strikes me as one of the most profound ironies of this current situation is that those who are the least responsible for climate change are those who are bearing the brunt of it and who will um, face the consequences without the resources to ameliorate it that the industrialized nations of the world... Have in order to help cope and adapt, but those resources are present because of these historic patterns of exploitation and colonialization. So it's it's this horrible, horrible irony, which to me strikes me in terms of helping. And addressing this globally, not only is it a practical need that we need to deal with this collectively, right, but it strikes me there's also a moral
1: dimension to that as well. Religious nationalism presents a second challenge to foreign policymakers, getting nationalists to the table for a productive conversation. Mark Jurgensmeyer, who is one of the foremost experts on nationalism, has said that ethno-religious national movements often reject the intervention of outsiders as well as the ideologies of outsiders. So they're less likely to collaborate with audi- with outsiders or compromise. They're less willing to consider multilateral solutions or innovative approaches to global problems, and we've, we know that climate change cannot be solved except on a global basis. So why are religious nationalists and nationalism generally less likely to come to the table, and what does that mean for the future of climate change action since we need solutions pretty immediately to, to make a difference. Alex, should we start with sure.
0: you? Sure. Um, you know, I'm not sure that there's a simple answer to that or a single answer to that, but what comes to mind immediately is that it's about power. And that, you know, in recent years, for example, we have seen a rise of um more authoritarian forms of government, right? A real uh, decrease in uh, democracies around the world. And a lot of that kind of system of governance is intimately tied with very exclusionary uh, forms of national identity and that the idea of working with other groups, outside groups, um, allowing them to help dictate what you do within your own society or what kind of lifestyles you lead or these kind of things are seen as weakening the independence and the authority of those power structures. And so I think there's oftentimes this... um, really knee-jerk, perhaps, reaction against these kinds of multinational uh, cooperative agreements because they're seen as um, taking power away from that state, whoever's in charge, and giving it away to other groups.
2: Beyond, I mean, I, I wish there would be um, much, a much broader religious Coalition that really understands itself as global to address the threat of climate change. Um, I don't think it exists. I mean, there are small pockets here and there, but it doesn't really exist. And, and that probably has to do um, just with the fact that the religions have been split up there. Um, where we have ecumenical cooperation, meaning cooperation between different churches or different religions it is often really wrong wrong, around the wrong reasons Um, there's a lot of cooperation between religious nationalists or religious fundamentalists in the United States with religious fundamentalists in the Orthodox Church in in Russia and former Russian um, countries but climate change is not an agenda. It's LGBTQ rights that should be taken away. (laughs) And uh, and Bible studies should be inserted. And marriage needs to be an anti-abortion. I mean, they they focus on things that have... A lot of energy is put in ecumenical relations for for things that have nothing to do with climate change. And at the same time, some religious nationalists even deny that climate change exists. And they think fossil fuel is nothing wrong with this and so on and so forth. So there is very little consensus Worldwide on the religious communities, or, or attempts to bring different religions together on this issue, that's sad um, and and dangerous and dangerous. And the religious nationalism that you're talking about is is it justifies, so to speak, why you're the person who you are in that nation state with a particular religion um, is eligible to preferential treatment over against other people.
1: Any. Final thoughts?
0: um, The only thing I would suggest is that um, the clock is ticking, the window is closing, and that humanity needs to get its act together and truly begin addressing this issue. Um, We talk about climate change as a crisis, but in some ways, I think that's misleading because that suggests a short-term situation. But what we are seeing is um, something much bigger than that, and that we truly need to begin moving and using all the tools at our disposal individually, collectively, uh, within all the different communities and institutions that we belong to begin addressing this. Um, Because if we don't, the
2: the outlook truly will be uh, apocalyptic. Yeah, and My fear is as, as the tension increases, we actually revert back to smaller units of, of like-minded people who will then fight one way or the other against other people or less fortunate people. It's Usually fear doesn't open us up to embrace everyone, which is, should be the response right. and the more productive response, but usually it's the reverse effect that yeah. we retreat to, to Smaller and smaller groups of s- similar identities, mm-hmm. and that we then seem to um, feel like we have a commitment then to this small group of people whereas everyone else needs to stay across the border (laughs) across wherever.
0: (laughs) You know, there are things that I think provide hope. I I think about this young Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, right, Mm -hmm. who most of us probably have seen the picture of her when she started off, I think it was like 2016, and she's standing alone with her sign in front of the Swedish parliament building. And then just, what was it, a year and a half ago, two years ago, you had the climate strike. And I think it was somewhere like 8 million young people around the world participated in it. That's There's hope there.
1: Well, thank you both for being here today and for talking with me about this. Dr. Alex Alvarez and Dr. Bjorn Kroendorfer, thank,
2: thank you. you. Great, thank you.